Welcome to the Wild Plant Culture Podcast, where we explore the cultural, historical, and ecological contexts for North American wild plant communities and their restoration. This episode is with ecologist Roger Latham. We talk about the geological and cultural factors that sustain eastern grasslands and barrens historically, and techniques for their restoration today. Our conversation ranges widely, from Pleistocene megafauna to controlled fire, Native American plant dispersal, serpentine rock, and other unique geologies. Thanks for the good feedback on the podcast so far and for spreading the word. Feel free to give me a holler at jared at wildridgeplants.com with feedback, ideas, or conversation. If you'd like to help out, reviews of the podcast on iTunes are important, so please consider putting one up if you like what you hear. This podcast is brought to you by Wild Ridge Plants, where we grow local ecotypes of native plants, consult on ecological restoration, and perform botanical surveys. The snippets of music you hear on this podcast are mine, unless otherwise noted. I first ran across Roger Latham on a tour of grassland restorations he led about 10 years ago. Towards the end of the field trip, we stopped at a massive diabase boulder field cloaked in lichens and rock cap fern, And I still remember being spellbound as Roger broke down the chemical composition of the local geology and soils and correlated them to the plant communities found on this rock type. Roger has a broad experience of ecology, but remains locally rooted and interested in the intersection of geology and botany, publishing work on serpentine barrens, Pocono till barrens, eastern grasslands, and other exceptional habitats. Roger is a strong proponent of ecological restoration and brings both scientific rigor and a great deal of inspiring energy to the restoration of plant communities. You can find many of Roger's publications at his website at www.continentalconservation.us. This was a really fun and inspiring conversation, and I hope you gleaned some gems from the zone where plants and rocks meet. I first ran into your work, one of the things, and I think I took a grasslands walk with you down on Natural Lands Trust Preserve probably a decade ago or yeah. something. Yeah. And I, I remember a trip in a school bus, an old school bus. Um, yeah. And I met you and David. Yeah, that's right. Trip. Yeah. yeah we and we went to places. two or three different stops yeah. and talked about grasslands. We ended up at Fullshaw Craig, which right. is just a beautiful yeah. diabase landscape with these incredible meadows. And I think one of the things that drew me to your work at that time was as a field botanist and in things that I read, we're always making these sort of loose assumptions or correlations with geology. So, right. And they're very tautological. It's sort of like, oh, I see what right. I've been told is a poor or acidic plant community, so therefore we must be on a poor or acidic substrate. And that's about as far as I got with nuance, and yet I'll go and survey at certain sites where there's this very clear vegetational line where certain species were finding on one substrate, not finding it on another. Something really cool is going on there, mm-hmm. but I totally stopped there. I have no idea. It's a black box under there. So one of the things that I found interesting about your tour was you're starting to talk about bio, about diabase and how it interacted with the bio, biology. So. How did you get there? What started, what brought on that 
sort of geological thinking in terms of so your work with habitats. Personally, historically. Well, I see you've got a lot of rocks in your rock collection yes. at home. So um, what, what came first, the rock collection or the sort of... I remember having a rock collection when I was like eight years old, but um, I think many years went by when I didn't anymore. But I do remember when I was first, when I first realized that I was cut out to be an ecologist for the rest of my life, I was in my 20s, lived in western Pennsylvania, and there was a, a, a guy at the Western Pennsylvania Conservancy, or two guys, who put together a, a, a book of the natural areas of Pennsylvania, and it was quite, quite primitive compared with what we have now, but it was the first stab at at um, looking at natural areas in Pennsylvania and cataloging them and according to quality and size and, and indicator species and all that kind of stuff. And I was totally into community ecology and how inter organisms interact and, and to produce the communities that we see. And I went to a whole lot of these places. I kind of had an in at the Western Pennsylvania Conservancy and I knew the guy who wrote the book and I even got him to take me on a couple of trips. But um, and I was fascinated with you know peat bogs things that were really different from the from the normal peat bogs and shale barrens and all kinds of uh, interesting spots. Do you like remember that. a couple of the early places you went out to? I went to this one shale barren in uh, Huntington County, Pennsylvania, called the Pogue Barrens, and no one it's, it was in that book. And I somehow found it on a map. We had we used maps in those days, <laughs> not, yeah. not GPS. And I think uh, that's a primitive skill now. It's <laughs> that's to right. Like soon people. I love maps. How do you maps. start fire with you know, like, a bow exactly. trail and how do you use a map? <laughs> I was a big map fan. Anyway, I went to this place and it was I'm telling you Appalachian, the Appalachian part of uh, Pennsylvania and Huntington County, and I heard there was a huge stand of native cactus there. So I was on this back road in the middle of nowhere, and I found this huge stand of native cactus, and I think it was blooming when I came upon it. And uh, and the people next door came out of their house to see what the heck I was uh -huh. doing, because that was their land. Yeah. And I said, I'm here to see this amazing uh, stand of cactus. And they said something like, oh, that stuff. Because <laughs> it was probably a pest for them because whenever they tried to weed it out of anything they cut their hands full of the little glockids yeah. <laughs> which hurts but that's the kind of places that I love to go and and then I heard in that book I saw the word serpentine barren for the first time ever and that just totally fascinated me I'm like what the heck is that and so I came east one day I was on my way to the beach in, uh, in Maryland eastern shore and uh, thought I'll just swing by the Serpentine Barrens and check them out. So I went to Nottingham Barrens and, and kind of fell in love with the place. And little did I know, in five years after that, I would be doing my senior paper and my th senior research thesis on Serpentine Barrens at Swarthmore College and launching a, a uh, research career that included much deeper research in the Serpentine Barrens off and on through grad school and postdoc and professorship back at Swarthmore and since then, uh, big time. And uh, I just am fascinated by that. And Serpentine is really the original um, thing that 
scientists, even before they were called scientists, recognized that there was a connection between the plants that grow in a place and the kind of rock that's under the soil of that place. And that was uh, a guy named by the name of Andrea Cesalpino in Tuscany. He was a, a professor at the University of Pisa. And he wrote a treatise in 1583. He was a polymath. He, he, uh, he was like the, the uh, I don't know, the, the Galileo of, of plants and other things, geology and I don't know what all. And he wrote a treatise and he said, you know, on serpentine rock, you, these plants you will only find on serpentine outcrops and nowhere else. So there must be a connection. And I, don't, I don't know whether he speculated as to what the connection would be or, or anything like that. He probably not, because in those days, I don't think we knew much about plant physiology. But if anybody knew anything, it was him. And, uh, and then, because people recognized that connection with serpentine rock, serpentinite, um, people began to look for other plant rock connections and found them all over the place. Never, well, very few as dramatic as the serpentine connection, but there are some rocks, I guess in Australia, that are super high and I don't even know what, you know, uh, odd stuff that, in California there's a few places where there's a, there's a really high quantity of some mineral that makes plants uncomfortable and there's only certain plants that can grow there. But for the most part, the connection is a little bit more tenuous. You know, you can find there's, you know, 90% of the flora is in common between, say, limestone areas here in Pennsylvania or in the Mid-Atlantic region and schist or sandstone or any of the other things. But there's a few species that are calcifiles, and we still are not quite sure why that is. I mean, there's all kinds of things happening under the ground. Like, in, I've, I've read that, that um, calcifiles are in particular are uh, particularly resistant to phosphorus shortage because there's something about high calcium environments that makes phosphorus less available mm -hmm. stuff like that there's interactions that we don't even know and who knows how, with how the fungi are, yeah. are involved in all that it's just all very complex and interesting like pretty much all of ecology <laughs> what are some of the plant species in Pennsylvania, serpentine barrens that are really obligate to that geology, or that yeah. tell the story of the serpentine yeah, yeah. barrens. Yeah, well, the uh, well, the geology is fascinating because serpentinite is an ultramafic metamorphic rock, and it's it's metamorphosed peridotite, which is what the uh, oceanic crustal plates are made out of peridotite is what's produced at the mid-Atlantic ridge, for example, out of lava coming from the magma coming up at the ridge. And peridotite is, consists of um, olivine and pyroxene, and for the most part. And olivine is, is uh, anyway, they're super high in magnesium, which is unusual, and very low in calcium. So those two rocks are, are uh, uh, igneous, not metamorphic, but, um, but they're considered as uh, a little chime, chiming in from my buddy. 
They're actually nesting in our garage, by the right. way. <laughs> I found them in my in my uh, bicycle helmet. A nest with four eggs. <laughs> you, Roger, wasn't using this bicycle helmet. So <laughs> no, indeed. Perfect. Anyway, so those igneous rocks are um, are ultramafic, and then they're metamorphosed into serpentinite at under certain conditions of pressure and exposure to seawater. Serpentinite is actually hydrated uh, peridotite, and uh, it expands when it hydrates. It's an exothermic reaction. It produces heat. But most of it stays under the ocean forever, and then it's subducted as the oceanic plates are subducted beneath continental plates with continental drift. But the subduction zones, when a continental plate and an oceanic plate hit, and the oceanic plate begins subducting, sometimes there's, there are islands that are carried along with the oceanic plate. And in any case, it's a very, very, very messy process. And it's kind of like a huge car wreck and there's a lot of rubble and pieces that get all ground up and, and turn up in places where you wouldn't expect them to. And amongst those pieces are these chunks of serpentinite, which kind of float upwards in some cases, just chunks, not huge, huge amounts. And, uh, and those become the roots of the island or the mountain ranges that form when continents come together or when oceanic plates dive under continents. So the same thing's happening right now. India is in the process of crashing into Asia and has been for uh, a few tens of millions of years. And no doubt, underneath, uh, at the very cores of the Himalayas, there's serpentinite chunks. And all we need to do is have uh, a few tens of millions of years of erosion and they'll come to the surface just like the ones here in uh, the Mid-Atlantic have done because there were two different mountain ranges um, sequentially in our part of the world that were uh, results of continental collision, both of which presumably produced some serpentinite up, onto the, up, on the, uh, up in the cores of the mountains, which then came to the surface after erosion. So when you're seeing a plant on the serpentine barrens, it's potentially telling this tens of millions or hundreds of millions your old story. Yeah, exactly. But you're talking about plants that are restricted. Almost no, because our climate is so variable here in the Mid-Atlantic, we... Or characteristic, know, it doesn't have to be restricted just to... Right, right, characteristic. But just but with a lot of characters. A lot of serpentine outcrops in the world have all kinds of endemics, like in New Caledonia, in Cuba, there are many places, and especially in the tropics, but also in California. And those are places that weren't um, windswept frozen tundras like we were uh, 16 times in the past 2 million years. Um, and so there, there's been time for endemism to, to develop in those places. Here, we only have a couple of, in, a few endemics, but um, we have a lot of species, many, many species that uh, live nowhere else except the serpentine barrens locally their main range is out west or it's on the coastal plain or it's way down south and they're disjunct from all those main ranges and one example is uh, I was talking about before is uh, fame flower Femoranthus teretifolius it's on uh, rock outcrops all through the south and then there's a gap 
in its range, and then it's on almost every single serpentine barren in Pennsylvania and Maryland, <laughs> and nowhere else. And it's a, it's a thing that can take absolutely no competition. It grows all by itself and doesn't grow anywhere except where its plant cover is sparse, but it's always on our serpentine barrens. And another one is uh, prairie drop seed, which is Sporobolus heterolopus, which is on three or four of the serpentine barrens, the bigger ones in Pennsylvania. And it is uh, like a common species in Nebraska and South Dakota and eastern Montana and places like that. And there's a gap in its range. It comes east to, to the prairies of Ohio, and there's a big gap. And then it's on the serpentine there. Yeah. There's a there's a mountain range in there. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, so how does that how does that happen? How I mean, I'm not asking for the definitive answer, but what are some of the things that come to mind when you think about these plants with these really disjunct ranges that somehow found many or all the serpentine barrens? Yeah. How, how did they How there? did they get here? Well, the the classic story about. Um, the prairie plants, the uh, Midwestern prairie plants, which includes prairie drop seed, it includes um, arrow feather three on, which is uh, Aristida purpurescens, and includes a whole bunch of other plants that are mainly Midwestern and Great Plains plants. Um, people think that there was a, people have thought for many years, and I don't know what this current status of this theory is, that there was a time during the current interglacial period called the hypsothermal when it was warmer than it is today, warmer and drier than it is today, and we may see it. We may be seeing a resurgence of it now. When the, uh, the prairie flora came farther east than it is because of uh, repeated droughts and maybe, presumably, because of Native American burning, because the prairies, the great prairies of the Midwest, the tall grass prairies, not the short grass prairies of the Great Plains, are a human artifact. You know, the previous interglacials had grasslands in the Midwest, but they were, there were lots and lots and lots of trees, too. The grasslands were patchy. And the grasslands that European explorers found in the 1700s in the Midwest had no trees at all. And that is presumably a, a human artifact from burning. But um, anyway, the thought was that during this hypsothermal period, the prairie a lobe of the prairie came east, and that some of these disjunct populations in places like serpentine barrens are uh, remnants of that time. The, the plants uh, in the intervening uh, land have, don't have any, well, they all got shaded out by trees, <laughs> basically, but in places like serpentine barrens, they persist. It was the only places they persisted. And that could be, I mean, prairie job seed as the name would imply, the seeds don't fly, they drop. <laughs> so it had to get here somehow. But like the, the uh, fame flower, the seeds are tiny, tiny little black marbles. How did they get up here? My theory has always been, has been for 30 years that there was a big old tornado in, uh, in uh, um, fame flower country down in North Carolina or someplace, uh, right at the right time of year to sweep up a whole lot of those tiny, tiny little seeds. They And Dorothy, right? And Dorothy, <laughs> and, the wicked, and the wicked librarian or whatever she was who became the witch. And uh, I remember when I was a kid having mud rain 
I lived in western Pennsylvania, and occasionally it would rain mud, and it was during times when the Midwest had a whole lot of tornadoes. So I'm thinking that those seeds came down and saturated the entire earth in the north because the weather system moved northeast, as it often does. And uh, the only place where fame flower persisted was on the serpentine barrens because they were, you know, they were a compatible habitat and one of the very, very few compatible habitats. Just the theory. <laughs> but give me a better one and I'll, and I'll like it. There's no way to test that theory. Well, I guess you could. After tornadoes in the south, you could uh, take an airplane up and have a, a drag net behind the airplane and, and drag the muddy clouds and see what, how many seeds there are. Watch out, NSF. Are. Here comes a grant proposal. <laughs> That'll be fascinating. Wouldn't it? Yeah, it's hard to imagine how certain things made it back northward after the last glaciation. And yeah. Somebody did a modeling for wild ginger mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, some kind of computer model based on which its is, dispersal. Which is ant dispersal. Yeah, right? and they yeah. said that based on the model, it should be like 10 miles north of the Smokies at this point or something. <laughs> right. Meanwhile, it ranges all the way back up into Canada. Yeah. How does that happen? Yeah, uh, exactly. Primarily ant dispersed seed. and. You we don't know. know. Crazy weather, crazy wildlife, or muddy, muddy feet, muddy mammals feet. Yeah. who range. Wild, With wild, certain wild. species, I often wonder about human dispersal. Yeah, and I think that well, there's I, a reasonable case to be made for at least many of the food and medicinal plants. Absolutely, you know, that's one of the things we're really good at is moving plants yeah. around. And one of the classics in that regard is uh, pawpaw. Yeah, because pawpaw apparently was it's its main native disperser is extinct yeah. and may have been horses or it may have been peccaries or it may have been tapers or who knows what it was all of the above and uh, and it is quite localized in its distribution these days and it tends to occur in places where people would settle like near rivers and yeah. that kind of thing yeah. and I think I think people took pawpaws with them. They had a big old pawpaw party every year because they have no shelf life and can't be made into pemmican or anything else. <laughs> but they brought them along because they were one of the few big sweet fruits that they could actually raise in the early days. Yeah, there's that huge population up along the Susquehanna. Yes. And to me, that area just looks like your regular kind of slopes over a river. We have the exact same habitat along the Delaware, yeah. just nice music slopes. But out along the Susquehanna, there's like acres and acres and acres of pawpaw right there. Right. And it doesn't seem far-fetched to think, well, somebody just brought these here yeah. and planted them. Yeah. And and a long time ago because it spread over a wide area. I think we're pretty sure that people um, planted black walnuts, for example, and lots of other yeah. things, probably. Yeah, there's a possible sort of multiple ploidy-level groundnut up in Maine that apparently isn't even maybe particularly reproductive. Really? It makes so much sense. And somewhat, uh, in other words, somewhat domesticated. Sort of I mean, my only experience with it was last year. I was up along the Androscoggin River, and along the edge of a farm field, which was totally rank, it was poison ivy and rubus species and stuff. There was groundnut there. It was like a ground cover out competing the poison ivy. Incredible. I've never seen it like that. Wow! And the tubers were big. Yeah. I, mean, I don't want to exaggerate here, 
but they were large compared to what I'm used to. Yeah. And it makes, it makes sense. sense. Somebody selected this Absolutely. extra large, like polyploid ground nut, brought it up to Maine. It spread all over where it could disperse vegetatively along the rivers or wherever people carried it. Mm -hmm. And now there's ground nut in Maine where maybe it wouldn't have dispersed there, right. you know, quote unquote naturally. Right. Although, you know, I kind of hate to bring this up because I feel like uh, this is a this is a really touchy thing that's sort of political and social and ecological at the same time. But I think we're perfectly comfortable counting human dispersed populations as quote unquote natural populations as long as they were done by Native Americans right. at some point. <laughs> it's so right? strange. So when things are state listed, yeah. uh, they'll only count populations that are natural, which of course could include some papa, you know, in, yeah. in New Jersey it was S1, it's S2 now, but presumably brought there by Native Americans, yeah. that's fine. So what are we saying? Are we saying that, you know, and here's where it gets really dicey, are we saying that, well, Native Americans weren't really people and we don't right, count exactly. human dispersed events, or modern people aren't really animals, <laughs> so they don't count. And of course, I'm not trying to say there's a simple answer here, because then you factor in invasive species and do they belong or not. Right. It gets super messy, but... At the same time, I feel like there's some urge to discount the level of human dispersal and human manipulation of the wild landscape that has led to what we now perceive as natural populations or natural habitats. I, 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 I think it, you're totally in total agreement with what you're saying, and, and that really... Um, bringing it back to serpentine barrens that is hugely important in the in the persistence of serpentine barrens through all the millennia is that it had to have been done by uh, or they had to have been a periodically set back to treeless state for all of those huge aggregation of meadow dependent heliophytes that grow in those places they could not have persisted there for which they must have for centuries if not millennia in big clusters with no nearby seed seed source unless those areas have been kept clear of trees yeah. somehow during that entire time and the only way since we when we came 15,000 years ago are responsible apparently for the um, extinction of the only other animals that can maintain treeless areas, namely mammoths, mastodons, and giant ground sloths. Um, we then invented uh, prescribed burning, yeah. <laughs> prescribed fire, which lots of Native American groups practiced, not all, but lots, and we have good historical records of that, and we have good paleontological records from uh, pollen cores done in the bottoms of lakes and, and down into peat, uh, peat deposits that there for any given area of at least the mid-Atlantic states you can find uh, almost the year when people started burning and the charcoal and the grass pollen and the other indicators of big open spaces suddenly jumps upward and stays upward wow. for the entire time until Europeans arrived. So um, so that's another example. I mean, serpentine barrens are probably an artifact, a human artifact. 
when I talk, give talks about them, I show, you know, I talk about all their values, scientific values and aesthetic values and, you know, educational values and so many other values of these serpentine barons that are so interesting and unusual. But one of them is uh, historical value because I show a slide of the, the huge pyramid at Chichen Itza in, in Maya country in Mexico and say, we don't have this here in the mid-Atlantic, but we do have the serpentine barons and they're just as much a legacy of our forerunners as that amazing pyramid. <laughs> it's, what we, it's about the only thing we have because people around here built stuff out of wood and it all rotted away. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great way to frame it and I find that a very encouraging message to put out to people which is that we're not just adverse agents in the natural world right. but that we can actually be part of these processes that lead to incredible biodiversity yeah. or exceptional habitats and it seems like you know you alluded to or talked about the tall grass prairie being anthropogenic earlier which is certainly one of the exceptional biomes on the planet yeah and there's more and more coming out about the amazon potentially being anthropogenic right. also which is you know the uh the sort of ultimate wild area in our, yeah. in our imaginations and here we are realizing that actually there are probably massive cities in the Amazon right. you know less than uh, half a millennium ago or whatever which with is which with unprecedented areas of created soil yeah somehow yeah what is it called something Prieta yeah Terra Terra, terra Prieta, Prieta. Yeah. it's amazing just yeah. totally amazing yeah. mind-boggling so how does this historical and cultural sense about the Serpentine Barrens inform your restoration approach as you're trying to bring some of these places back? Well, and, and again, when I give talks on Serpentine Barrens, I always bring it back to what, what um, natural process are we trying to mimic with this management tool? And at Serpentine Barrens, it's, it's it's a combination of prescribed fire, which is mimicking um, the fires that Native Americans set for mil for centuries or millennia. It's um, it's actually uh, um, taking the top layer of organic matter away, and um, erosion did that, but erosion was helped along by mammoths and mastodons and giant ground sloths uh, denuding the ground, wallowing. Uh, there's a great, there's a great um, uh, African proverb that I show in my, my serpentine talk. Something like, if the, if the elephants fight, the grass suffers. If the elephants make love, the grass also suffers. And in fact, it's the trees that suffer when the elephants fight, make love, roll around in the mud, whatever they do, they bring down trees to eat them, they trample, and they open up grasslands that attract horses, well, they did before the great extinction here in, the, in our region, attract horses and tapers and peccaries and giant armadillos and giant beavers and all the other um, huge uh, herbivores that were around. Uh, for the past 10, 15, 20, 30 million years. And um, those, uh, those uh, other herbivores, those mesoherbivores, kept the, the elephant clearings open. We see the same thing in Africa now where elephants live where there's plenty of rain 
and it's not so seasonal that the entire area would not be forested without the elephants. But because the elephants are there, there are big, big grassy openings, and those are maintained by antelope and, and zebras and all the other critters that maintain openings. And so we had that. So um, the, the uh, re what I call organic matter, soil organic matter reduction, which most people call scraping, <laughs> sort of mimics the big animals doing what they do and then erosion doing what it does and the soil becoming shallower and shallower. And so that's an extremely uh, effective restoration technique. Um, I've used that a whole bunch of places, or I've seen it used a whole bunch of places uh, based on some research that I did years ago in Nottingham Barrens. And you take that stuff away, you get 100% native cover in about two years. And it's all serpentine barren stuff. So the uh, one of the keys to um, re restoring any unusual community that's unusual because of the bedrock is to have somehow have soil shallow over that bedrock because then the effects of the bedrock come through and trees around here lay down 10 to 20 tons per acre per year of organic matter and so it doesn't take long for a tree cover that invades a serpentine barren, for example, because of fire uh, exclusion, to uh, completely convert the soil to one that anybody can grow in. And of course, the trees themselves kill off all of the uh, serpentine grassland species because they're all shade intolerant. So in order to get it back, you have to get rid of most of the trees, get rid of some of the organic matter if you can, keep disturbing it in a way that kills trees, which is fire for the most part. And you got your serpentine grassland back. So given that you probably don't have access to any cloned mastodons, <laughs> I um, wish. what does your toolkit look like for doing that initial scraping? It's basically, it's just a front end loader or nice. a backhoe and a dump truck yeah. and somebody who wants the dirt. <laughs> and that's a problem sometimes. Actually at Nottingham Park, they've done a bunch of uh, or soil organic matter reduction and they've been dumping it in sadly in my estimation they've been dumping it into um, the many mining pits that dock that dot that site because those are considered as public hazards to public right. safety and they put fences around some of them and, and they're beautiful and they're fascinating from a historical standpoint and I hate to see them destroy them but that's one place where some of the dirt has yeah. gone the the uh, recent soil organic matter reduction effort at Pink Hill and Tyler Arboretum uh, to to bring the serpentine barren uh, serpentine grassland which had shrunk down to about three acres back to something like 12 acres which is more or less what it was when the first aerial photo was taken in the 1930s um, they put that dirt in a big pile <laughs> elsewhere on this on the arboretum it's too bad people don't want that stuff because it's good dirt. <laughs> I could take a pickup truck there. <laughs> could have some interesting seeds in it. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it does. <laughs> Especially uh, Greenbrier. <laughs> yeah, so that's one of the early invaders. What are, when you start seeing the serpentine barrens accumulate too much of a soil layer, what are some of the early invaders that are moving it away from these sort of small yeah, meadow that's, plants? That's a really good 
uh, question. The one, the ones that are the t the three natives that are the most um, aggressive. I, I hate to call native plants invasive, but are most aggressive in taking over serpentine grasslands are Virginia pine, um, eastern red cedar, and common greenbrier, uh, Smilax rotundifolia, and they are completely happy in the serpentine soil no matter how um, shallow it may be and they lay down a surprising amount of organic matter and of course really dense shade yeah. and so they just totally eliminate all of the grassland vegetation and those are the most common natives that that do that thing and all except for smilax um, the two conifers are completely fire sensitive so all you need is a little fire going through there every so often and they all die yeah. spectacularly in the case of eastern red cedar they torch and make a whole lot of crackling noise and they're quite spectacular i've seen 50 foot flames coming out of the top of a fairly small eastern red cedar during a prescribed fire but we also have some non-native invasives that are tolerant of the soil sadly and um and they have done a huge amount of destruction and not only destruction but the litter that they lay down is is highly enriched in nitrogen which makes it even faster makes it go even faster and those are um, black locusts which may or may not be native around here I've, I've heard tell that it before Europeans moved it across the mountains that it was west of the Appalachians mm -hmm. only and um, or at least the west flank of the Appalachians. And the other one that's um, the biggest pest is uh, autumn olive. And both of those, of course, have root symbionts that fix atmospheric nitrogen. Yeah. So they're really a danger, a huge danger. And they need to be ripped out by the roots if possible because they are extremely um, uh, tolerant of stem removal. Uh, if you if you remove one black locust, one medium-sized black locust um, this year, next year there will be a hundred little tiny black locusts yeah. from its roots, and I suspect the same is true of Guatemala. And uh, so we're ripping them out by the roots. Um, if we can't do that, then we cut them off at ground level and put uh, some kind of herbicide on the glyphosate or uh, or triclopyr on their um, on their what do you call it the circle uh, the green circle around yeah. their bark and uh, try to kill the roots before they start back up again but those are the two worst non-native uh, invasives that can convert serpentine barrens one of the things that I remember reading in sort of older books about forests in the Northeast is there's this I don't know what to call it. It's not a proverb, but it's sort of a saying about how, you know, before the white man came, a squirrel could have jumped from yeah. tree to tree from, I don't know, Maine to Georgia. Yeah, or right, exactly. New York to Florida Chicago or whatever or something. it was. <laughs> and, you know, meanwhile, we have a fair amount of meadow flora in our, in our local native floras, and we touched on this a little bit, but... What's your feeling about that? Yeah, well, we have more than more than a little bit of native meadow flora. Our, our heliophytes are 
something on the order of one-third of all of the species, maybe up to one-half of all of the species that exist that are native to, say, the Mid-Atlantic region. And if there was 99.999% forest cover, I find it a little hard to believe in particular because a great many of those, and I don't have the numbers I wish I did, are not long-distance dispersers. So they had to have stable habitat over long periods of time or they would be extinct. Yeah, so hate to interrupt, but how did that prickly pear get to that shale barrens up in <laughs> yeah, good what quest. I assume is sort of the middle of nowhere? Good, yeah, um, it's in the middle of nowhere. Well, that's easy. That's easy because okay. prickly pears are burr dispersed. Okay, all right, that's fair enough. <laughs> but there are so many species that are not either bird or wind dispersed that are that are part of our flora and a lot of them are rare and the ones that we consider as conservative are most likely dependent at least a large number of them dependent on long 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 persisting um, available habitat they they may have a long lifetime in the seed bank we don't know so they can wait around but the fact that they exist only in little spots here and there and that they often come in clusters you'll see one meadow will have 10 rare species and you know 10 million meadows around it will have none Um, makes me believe makes me suspect I should say and I don't know how we're going to test this but suspect that um, there are some places that just by luck have been meadows for you know hundreds if not thousands of years Serpentine barrens, it's, it's fairly easy to know why they persisted because the soil is so weird that plant growth is extremely slow on those. So they can be disturbed. They can have a tree killing disturbance once every so often and they'll still persist. Whereas most areas around here, unless there's a tree killing disturbance like every two second year, you're going to have a forest come in that quick. If you ban in a field, uh, field with uh, fairly um, fertile soil around here, there's a basically a forest a year later because unless they're deer are super abundant, which they generally are, but you have millions of seedlings, tree seedlings coming in fast. And so, um, so what was the question? <laughs> you know, that was the answer, whatever the question was. <laughs> well, let the me... question was about the presence of so much meadow flora in the Northeast, or at least now that you've answered it, I can nuance what the question was. And I think, yeah, sort of and I, I have more to say about that. Yeah. I did a study on, uh, on, I guess you'd call it ancient grasslands in Pennsylvania some years ago, and put together all kinds of historical sources and herbarium record sources and lots of other lines of evidence to try to figure out how much just to get a ballpark maybe order magnitude estimate of how much land was in not trees when Europeans arrived in this part of the mid-Atlantic and it came out I, I think some pretty good evidence showed that it may have been on the order of one to one to three percent of the land so a squirrel probably could have gone from tree to tree but it would have had to skirt around a whole bunch of openings and some of those openings were huge some of them were estimated to be in the thousands of acres and they 
almost certainly were due to uh, fires, huge, huge fires, and most likely set by Native Americans because very, very, very rarely around here does a lightning bolt ignite a fire that travels. Lightning bolts typically around here ignite one tree, that tree might smolder, and then it's doused with a ton of water from the storm that accompanied the lightning bolt. I have heard tell, however, that something like 90% of lightning bolts are negative, and I'm not even sure what that means from a physics point of view, and about 10% of lightning bolts are positive, and positive lightning bolts can be much higher voltage and typically are much, much, much longer, so they can arc out from a cloud that's dumping water here over to a place that hasn't had any water and you know punch the ground with this tremendous bolt and uh, actually start a fire so there probably were some lightning ignited fires but there were also most likely a lot more human ignited fires back in the old days but the the thing is that one to three percent of Pennsylvania that may have been not treed at the time of European settlement is pretty similar to the amount of Pennsylvania that was in wetland at the time of European settlement. So, and we all know how important wetlands are and how many species depend on wetlands, likewise with upland meadows and grasslands. One of the things I remember from your grasslands publication was not only the amount of meadow flora and rare meadow flora, but also associated wildlife species yes. that match together, you know, pollinators or lepidopterans yeah, or whatever yeah. that need that meadow flora absolutely. that are also large, comprise a large amount of the state lifted species. Yeah, absolutely. So do you think that there's uh, maybe something of a blind spot to this vanishing flora and the habitat that it occupied in our ecological understanding of Absolutely. Absolutely. There, there have been since I think for many, many years and that that um, that proverb that you quoted about the squirrel is is really common knowledge to everybody. Yeah. Pernicious squirrel <laughs> proverb. <laughs> right. yeah. yeah. And there's there's um, right now you're probably aware there's um, something called the Southern Grassland Initiative happening. Uh, Dwayne Estes is the, uh, he's a professor at Simon P. University in Kentucky, Tennessee, where is that? I don't even know. Anyway, he's uh, spearheading it and there's some other people involved. I'm involved a little bit. Um, they've made southeastern Pennsylvania an honorary part of the south for the purposes of this. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyway, uh, He's trying to, he's, his whole mission basically is to get people to understand that that wasn't the case, that that it wasn't 99.99%. Yeah. That's forced. fascinating. I, I wasn't aware of that project, yeah. but I'll definitely check that out. That's yeah. And there are lots and lots and lots of nature preserves in the South and potential nature preserves that aren't yet protected that have an amazing meadow and grassland flora. Yeah. I went to one in North Carolina that's just stunning. It was on uh, Diabase a, f a few years ago. I was on my way down to, we were on our way down to uh, Charleston to see the total eclipse. 
and we did a we did a diabase tour on the way down in Virginia and North Carolina. And this one site in North Carolina, it's got something like twelve to fifteen G one species or G two species. All in one site and you know, like hundred and fifty state listed <laughs> not quite that many, but I think probably wow. over a hundred state listed wow. species. And it's it's one of its species, interestingly enough, and one of the reasons I wanted to go there is even though it's diabase and even though it's three hundred miles away, Serpentine Aster. It's the only other place besides southeastern Pennsylvania and a tiny bit of adjacent Maryland where Serpentine Aster exists is on only other place is uh, in this North Carolina diabase glade. And the only reason it's been saved is because it has a, a double row of high voltage power lines going through it. And the whole rest of the area is now covered with trees. And so there's this ugly power line yeah. with just an, an right. stunning flora. Wow. Site. It really is. So tell me more about this Mafic Meadows project, which I, is what you're up to lately. Yeah, so. Tie in right there. So Serpentine is called an ultramafic rock because it's super high in magnesium and iron and super low in calcium. And that's kind of the definition of ultramafic. And they're always either igneous or metamorphic rocks. Then there's something called mafic rock, which is rocks that are low, exceptionally low in silicon and generally high in magnesium, but not particularly low in calcium. Mm -hmm. So they're a, little, they're a little like serpentinite, and they're a little like limestone and dolomite, which are super high. Dolomite is super high in magnesium, but even higher in calcium. So the calcium seems to be an important thing in there. And by the way, serpentinite is super high in nickel, which is toxic to most plants. So all the plants that live on shallow soils and serpentine barrens are have some nickel, some means of dealing with nickel that other plants may not have. But in any case, the, the diabase, the, the mafic rocks are diabase, gabbro, mafic gneiss, um, there's a bunch of other ones. And they're, they tend to be also igneous, or most, mostly igneous rocks, I believe. Um, and we have something in New Jersey through Maryland and a whole big slice of Pennsylvania called the Tria Triassic Lowlands. And it's a, failed, um, it's a failed rift, like the Rift Valley in Africa, which is rifting as we speak. This tried to rift many, many years ago, and it failed. It broke, you know, a rift further to the east, succeeded, and became the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> this rift uh, stopped in its tracks, but during the rifting process, uh, magma came near the surface, and it was kind of a slow-motion volcano that never broke the surface. And uh, now, um, zillions of years later erosion has exposed that in some areas and that's diabase and so it's they're called diabase sills because diabase is, is fairly common as a, in the form of a dike so it'll magma will seep up between two rock formations and form a flat plate which will intersect the surface as a as a as a straight as a line generally kind of a straight line straight meandering line and those are dikes but these are called sills because they cover hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of acres. And uh, there are meadows 
and those that are exceptionally high in diversity of native species, native meadow species. And that has always totally intrigued me because uh, kind of because of the serpentine grassland model. Yeah. And here's something here's something else. And plus we know that limestone meadows where the soils are fairly shallow also have a whole bunch of distinctive native aggregations of native species which are different from serp serpentine barrens and different from these mafic um, mafic meadows we call them or mafic glades we call them mafic glades because that's a term they use in the south where there's a lot of mafic glades yeah. and they they uh they have the uh, state heritage programs have defined communities with using the word glade. But anyway, uh, so we're, we started this project to look at what makes these things, what makes these mafic meadows so darn special that they have all these conservative species hanging out on them and big clusters of conservative species. And our experimental design is that we're comparing a whole bunch of those, say 10 or 12 of those sites, with three serpentine barrens. Three, uh, we hope to have three, we haven't found any so far, calcareous meadows in the same region, and um, several three to five, what we're calling uh, control sites or outlier sites on just plain uh, country rock like uh, schist uh, or the uh, the tertiary Bryn Mawr deposits, which are basically alluvium and colluvium uh, from from ice age deposits from the Delaware River, and uh, comparing the floras of all these, all of them are rich meadows with lots of native species and lots of conservative species, and we're also doing soil studies on all of those. So we want to do this, I want to do this massive multivariate analysis where I take soil factors and the, the uh, um, all of the data on species cover, we're taking species cover on every single species we find out there, and um, uh, many replicates, many subplots on each, or sub-quadrats, sub-samples on each one, and uh, and see what what about the soil, if anything, yeah. is is sorting out these different communities that we're finding. And I went into this, I'll confess, with uh, with a predisposition to thinking that we we have a specialized diabase meadow flora. Yeah. And now that I've we found our sites and we're taking data like crazy, and we've had soils beginnings of soil studies. Last week there was a group from the NRCS and the Western Pennsylvania Conservancy and our group, which includes people from the Academy of Natural Sciences, out there studying the soils, looking at the soils. And it seems as though maybe it's not the diabase or the maficness of these sites that's important, but something else. Because the out the outlier sites are don't look much different in terms of either the flora or the soil horizons and that kind of thing. So do you think you're looking at like a land use history? I wonder if land use, absolutely. Like I think land use history may be key. And what we were dumbfounded by is that some of the sites that we were using that appeared to be old farm fields, and by old I mean since the beginning of European farming, which was yeah. 300 years ago, 
you know, they could have been 250 years old or whatever, have never been plowed. <laughs> what the heck is that all about? I mean, how many meadows got lucky enough never to have been plowed? And, so it's for like unimproved hay or unimproved yeah. pastures. They've been just... they've been hayed. All of these have been hayed for for as long as anybody can remember. But I'm I, they have to have been yeah. pastures yeah. that were never planted. And they could have been pastures originally because they were already suitable sites that happened to be in these older very possibly very possible. That's really interesting, and it leads me to another uh, you know possibly unanswerable question that I don't completely know how to set the stage for, but. Uh, I wonder how much the particular ecological community in the soil biology is then inflected in the meadow community above, because there's plenty of sites where you've got thin soils over bedrock and all you have over it is mugwort or whatever because right. it's a highly disturbed site. Right. So there's something else besides just the geology that's inflecting and what kind of and, and I wonder if I wonder the same thing exactly. And I wonder if the fact that they've never been plowed means that the some of the biota that was in the soil 300 years ago is still there. Yeah, it may never have been killed off like it was in many other places. And you know, we're learning more and more all the time how absolutely crucial the relations, underground relations with of plants, with fungi, with the fungi, with each other, the bacteria that are down there, the little animals that are down there, all of that stuff is working together in ways that have only been dreamed of recently, I think. I mean, we now know that trees communicate with each other through their mycorrhizal fungi and, and that trees in the understory can be maintained alive by their parents by subsidizing them with sugars <laughs> through the fungi that they're mutually attached to and all kinds of things like that. I mean, they can send signals to each other that there's a pest about and you should ramp up your uh, alkaloid um, anti-pest control uh, machinery even before they are even bitten by the pest. So who knows what's going on underground? The whole competition model seemed very convenient that it arose just at the same time that capitalism. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I used to say that to my uh, to my to my students. You know, mutualism is just as interesting, just as complex, just more complex, yeah. just as uh, influential, no doubt. But our view of uh, ecology. Have for the first hundred years of ecology was red in tooth and claw, yep. even plants, yep. green yep. in tooth and claw, green in <laughs> green in uh, barb and uh, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. yeah, it was you know it was it was competition, competition, competition. Even when I was in grad school in the eighties, it was still competition, competition, competition. Mutualism you couldn't get an NSF grant for. Nowadays, it's quite a different story, I hope. I, I, I think it is, because I'm seeing more and more literature that's just fascinating on, on mycorrhizal relations and on all kinds of other things going on underground. One of the things that we started talking about over lunch that I wanted to loop back to is um, there's a bunch of different species that probably were more widespread across different geologies in the past yes. that seem to be 
taking a sort of last refuge on either diabetes or limestone yeah. or you know maybe serpentine. I'm you not as aware of the flora on serpentine, and they've become these sort of really conservative seeming species, but they may have been sort of weedy in the past, yep. or at least a lot more widespread. And I'm thinking about things like fringe gentian and Indian paintbrush, and we talked about fireweed for a little bit. Yeah. And um, sometimes with limestone, I've wondered whether um, maybe, uh, I've wondered and read, so you know, this is not necessarily coming straight from me, but you know, maybe the calcium is buffering some sort of acid rain effect or yeah. things like that. But I guess what I really wonder and want to really think about is that sometimes these geologies, and I almost call them adverse geologies, seem to preclude the really rank generalist species that would quickly wipe out these, in the case of French gentian, like a native biennial that only grows knee high or so. And that these less rank conditions then must have at some point been more pervasive, but now so many of our soils are altered, polluted, over-fertilized, not subject to the same... Full yeah, of, I don't know. I'm just full of Eurasian earthworms, which is one of the worst. It's almost like we spent, uh, we being the quote-unquote white man, spent the last couple hundred years trying to turn this continent into Europe. Because mm -hmm. we've got New England and we've got New York right. and we've got New Jersey, and you know, grazing Eurasian ungulates and using Eurasian pasture grasses like mm -hmm. orchard grass and Timothy and so on. And it's almost no wonder then that eventually the soils might become more like a Eurasian soil, maybe Absolutely. hosting the same soil microbes, uh, microbes, yep. and thus more receptive to invasion by Eurasian species. And I feel like. That's part of the puzzle, but there's, there must be so many other pieces. I'm just interested to hear you sort of there's, sink your teeth into the same question. There's definitely, you hit the nail on the head in that last sentence about positive feedbacks. You know, garlic mustard is a great example. You know, garlic mustard will invade a place, change the soil microorganism structure. Um, they have allelopathic effects on some of the mycorrhizal fungi so therefore make it harder for native tree seedlings to get established or to grow or to thrive and that just makes the environment better for the worse for them the um, fungal components of the soil mi microbiome and and better for the bacterial components of the soil microbiome and bacteria turn over nitrogen faster which gives advantage to the other weeds from Eurasia which all of which are demanding highly demanding most of which are highly demanding of nutrients and grow really well with under high nutrient conditions um, positive feedbacks are a really big part of and if you reverse those positive feedbacks we've done this here in my hometown we have the uh, environmental advisory council um, I actually initiated a, a forest restoration program in our most popular wildlife sanctuary. We have three of them. And uh, it was just 100% uh, garlic mustard, understory. And we started pulling. Every spring we had a half-day pull. And I thought, you know, this, this might be a fool's errand. Uh, but it's worth an experiment, and I really didn't have very high expectations. 
what happened was just astounding. The the um, after five, six, seven years of pulling the garlic mustard, the seed bank was somewhat depleted, and the native plants that we didn't even notice were there have roared back to life and covered much bigger area than they covered before. Every year, I had to. I would lead a, a, uh, an informative walk before the poll for people who wanted to learn about what should they get rid of from their own gardens. And every year we had to go on a longer and longer and longer walk before we found the first garlic mustard plant <laughs> from the parking lot. So you can, but I don't know what we're going to do about this earthworm thing. No one's come up with a solution for that. And they're doing incredible destruction and that's another uh, positive feedback. The earthworms make the environment much more bacterially controlled, much less fungally controlled, and uh, the uh, invasives love that, and so they get even stronger, and and they are good food for the earthworms who reproduce even more, and you know, and our our woodland salamanders are extinct over mo huge areas now because the worms take all of their cover away, all their Typically, you, you have bare ground or covered with worm castings where you used to have two or three inches of leaves persisting throughout the year. And it's just, it's just changing way too fast and way too alarmingly. And what was the original question I got off on a tangent again? You know, I have no idea. <laughs> moving along the same tangent, I mean, three things come to mind. One is that if earthworms reduced all the dove layer, that also changes the flammability of the forest. Absolutely, which makes could it be much very less problematic so. for yep. controlled burning. But the other thing, just following up on what you're saying, and maybe leaving earthworms aside for the moment, is: Are there any other tools you've either experimented with or just heard about that sound intriguing for reducing the, uh, I guess you'd say, nutrient load of a soil and making it more like a ni native soil, reducing nitrogen or what have yeah. you to to remediate, but in this sort of Absolutely. The, the one way of reducing nitrogen, which I don't think is practical over a large uh, area, is to, <laughs> believe it or not, to spread sugar. It's plain old granulated sugar. And what that does is it feeds the bacteria, and the bacteria incorporate the nitrogen into their bodies because bacteria are much uh, more effective at grabbing nitrogen than plants are, or either, even than fungi are. Fungi are. And so um, you, you have a huge bloom of bacteria, but you know that can cause side effects that you don't want. And I don't think that's a very effective way. Another thing that's been used is elemental sulfur. And you can spread that, and I've tried that here, and it's a little bit radical, because uh, the first time I tried it, nothing at all would grow there for a long time. <laughs> but you can lower the pH if you do it right um, that's a temporary effect, but it could be, you know, one that would give native plants a chance again, and then they could take over and and keep the non-natives out by, by uh, just, uh, you know, resisting their invasion. Um, so this is something I've never been able to connect the dots on. Oh, okay, there's one more oh, no, that I wanted to mention, yeah. which is harvesting the biomass. Yeah. And you can do that. Uh, it doesn't work in forests very well, but you can do it in. Uh, in meadows, and and we are so lucky here in uh, the southeastern Pennsylvania, in particular, to have the biggest uh, aggregation of mushroom farms of anywhere around, because they don't care what the heck's in the hay. Mushrooms don't care. The mushroom growers don't care. Most people want their hay to be pure, you know, Timothy and orchard grass and all that kind of stuff, 
mushroom growers will take anything and so if we harvest the biomass from a field for five or six years in a row um, when it's at the, its maximum growth you're taking off a whole lot of nitrogen a whole lot of phosphorus a whole lot of things that plants need to grow and you're, you're setting the, the place back and another another way is to skim off the uh, like I mentioned before at the serpentine barrens skim off the the top layer getting rid of a whole bunch of organic matter and where I've seen that be effective not on serpentine barrens was in a uh, there's a there's a meadow not far from here in a in a town park it's quite large it's uh, I don't know five acres or something that I looked at it, it has amazing flora it's mostly uh, uh, native plants and it's in the middle of suburbia how did this come to be you know all of our all of our meadows around here are just loaded with crap and so I looked at an aerial photo and here it's near a, a, a former state mental hospital and here when they built the hospital for some reason they stripped all the topsoil off of five acre area because they needed it for something and then they just abandoned that area and that is the beautiful meadow <laughs> and so all, they, all you need to do is get rid of that, those extra nutrients and the native flora will step up. <laughs> That's interesting. I've seen that at Duke Farms is an environmental center over yeah. in New Jersey. And they had, I guess, what was like the great lawn for the estate. Yes. And you can imagine how much crap got put on that lawn Absolutely. for decades and decades. Yes. And what they did there is they just, you know, they got earth moving equipment and they stripped off the top layer of soil there, the sod and everything. And... The first time I saw it, it just clicked this sort of like, uh, just visually, I said, yeah, that's what a meadow is supposed to look like because the flora was really low. It wasn't really rank. You had even stuff like bone set, maybe like a foot or two tall. Yeah. And yeah. that's what it looks yeah. like sometimes, you know, on these interesting geology right. sites. Like, up at White Lake on the limestone or whatever, yep. you know, you have stuff and it's normally four feet tall. Right. Like I'm, and it's it's a foot tall yeah. or something. So, so they did something right here, and then as you're walking along the trail through the Great Meadow, all of a sudden you come on both sides of this trail. There's this nasty mountain full of pokeweed and Canada yes, thistle yes, and yes. all kinds. Well, that's where they took all the soil and they dumped it <laughs> on these two heaps, so you can see side by side what. The, you know, nutrient and rich soil is supporting yep. the completely rural rank weeds, and then this really nice sort of like the little blue stem is a foot tall, right next to cardinal flower with that's, butterfly milkweed. And that's just great. I'm just like that is so it's, cool. It's a perfect visual. Yes, for showing that. My meadow here, meadow. I'm making air quotes. Is is like eight feet tall. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I can't. I. I've planted so many things in there that have died off yeah. because they can't take that. Yeah. And the eight foot tallers are natives, but they're still, they're just choking everything. And they're, they're making the diversity low. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, there's definitely a place for those plants, but they may be more yeah. constrained in Absolutely. a lower nutrient or a different disturbance regimen or whatever. It's funny. There's a bunch of plants that I only know from the serpentine barrens because that's only place I've ever seen them. Yeah. And I'll, sometimes I'll see them somewhere else. Yeah. And they'll be twice as big. <laughs> I won't recognize them or I'll think, oh my God, I didn't even know it got that big. Yeah. Same, same phenomenon. So what some of the things you're talking about is reminding me of, and I don't remember if I have the phrase exactly right, but one of the things that 
I remember learning about from one of your papers, maybe about the Mesic Till Barons, is the idea of like an alternate stable state. Yes. Can you go into that a little bit? Because I feel like that is so informative for the idea of restoring something that is maybe invaded back to native, but it's also very informative for this process, the conversion of a formerly native habitat to something invaded. And it just it was a really helpful little construct for me, and I was wondering if you can talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating topic. Um, it, for a long time, was a controversial topic in ecology. People didn't believe it because, you know, Henry Gleason, well, not Henry Gleason, who came before him back in the 20s or teens? Um, Henry Coles, I think his name was Henry. And then uh, who was the father of uh, succession theory? Clements, Frederick Clements, um, decided that there was such a thing as succession. And he took the word from, uh, I guess, from the succession of royals <laughs> in Europe. You know, who, who's next in the succession, in the line of succession? And he, he observed that abandoned fields, abandoned farm fields, would get trees, seedlings growing in them, and, and heliophytes at first, and then another stage, and then another stage, and shrubs would dominate at some point, and then the trees would take over and shade everybody else out and so forth. And that was succession. And, and it became imprinted on people's consciousness who thought about ecology that Clements believed that every type of landform, including, you know, what kind of bedrock it was, had a, an inevitable successional sequence on it and that the final um, stage of that sequence is called the climax and that each climax was an inevitable result of plant interactions on that particular kind of landform. And we don't think that anymore. I don't think people even talk about succession all that much, and not in the way they used to. Um, what really appears to be the case is that um, successional trajectories are contingent on history in some way. And you can see that. You can see that around here. You know, you'll go into a forest and there'll be oaks and beeches and hickories and black gums and, and various maples and this is and that's and then you'll come to a point where you suddenly notice there's nothing but tulip trees yep. <laughs> and that's quite obvious that that successional pathway was uh, an artifact of when it was abandoned as a farm field uh, what fruits were available to you know to grow on it the fact that it was completely open and tulip trees are completely shade intolerant but the fastest growing of all of our, uh, of all of our um, tree species, all of our deciduous tree species, uh, except for chestnut, by the way. Chestnut wow. grows faster than tulip tree. I, that was from my uh, doctoral research. And starting from a big seed. That's right. And tulip so trees starting from a advantage. tiny, tiny seed. Yeah. Yes. Um, but in any case, uh, you see different successional trajectories. And the people who first brought this to science were um, uh, marine biologists looking at the intertidal. And there are areas that if you scrape them clean of rock, you know, there are storms will, will scrape rocks clean by rubbing rocks against each other. So if you imitate a storm or you come in after a storm, who settles first 
determines the so-called climax state, and it's either a bunch of um, algae, algae, which are big seaweeds, or a bunch of mussels with a few other animals mixed in. And people were thinking, well, why are there big patches of mussels and why are there big patches of algae? Is there something about the rock? Is there something about the, the schedule of the tide? Is there yeah. something about the energy of the tide in that particular place? Is it something about this? Is it something about that? And they did a bunch of experiments and found out that it's the season when the disturbance occurred and what larvae are available to settle. And that they determined then the trajectory of that on the same site. And that's um, alternative stable states is, is an early name that was given to that phenomenon that you can have uh, succession to a stable state and it can differ from uh, on the same site depending on initial conditions of establishment and uh, it's been found more and more on uh, terrestrial in terrestrial communities as as time goes on and that the my favorite example is because I did a whole postdoc worth of research up there is the Pocono Till Barrens, where um, the whoever gets you know we we saw this big area, the Pocono Till Barrens of incredible shrub barrens, uh, mini shrub barrens. Uh, what do you call them? Little shrubs. Mini shrubs is a good enough word for it, um, and some bigger shrubs and lots of. It's a savanna, so it's got spotty trees here and there, mostly pitch pine. And uh, and the area is a special kind of glacial till. It's it's Illinois and glacial till. Most glacial till is Wisconsin and glacial till because the Wisconsin and glacier came, what was it, uh, 20-some thousand years ago and stayed for a while and then left 12,000 years ago and retreated back to the towards the pole. And the, the glaciation prior to that was the Illinoisan glacier glaciation 120,000 years ago, something like that. And, uh, and because the last four glaciations have been the coldest of the last 16 or 20 or how many of there have been, each one has pretty much obliterated any remnant or any evidence of the previous one because they're like bulldozers. But the, each, the Illinoisan went a little farther south here in the east, so it might have been a little colder than the Wisconsinan. And so there are still areas of, of Illinois and glacial till. And the Illinois and glacial till that's left is mostly on big flat areas because there's, it hasn't eroded away. You know, it was subject to really, really, really bad weather during the Wisconsinan glaciation. But because it was flat, it didn't erode away. So there's a big flat plain of Illinois and glacial till. But half of it's covered with northern hardwood forest, beech, and uh, northern uh, um, yellow birch, and black cherry, and a little bit of uh, red ma or, uh, sugar maple, and things like that. And half of it's covered with these totally amazing barrens, which are loaded with uh, rare and conservative species. Big areas of Rhodora, which is Rhododendron canadensa, with bright pink flowers in April. It's oh, just totally amazing place. And so why? What is it about the soils? It's obviously got to be something about the soils, right? So we did a, a four-year-long research project and found, guess what? It has nothing to do with the soils. It's the plants that are changing the environment in a way that favors their own 
offspring and disfavors the offspring of the other community state and what has um, what what uh, brings it back to zero uh, every so often is a conflagration and there used to be um, people used to set fires up there to favor the blueberries in fact the state declared that area uh, a non-protection area in order to try to get neighbors to discourage other their neighbors from lighting so damn many fires wow. <laughs> you know they stayed out the state stayed out and so the fires raged I mean there were 10,000 acre fires up there and they would burn for two weeks I mean burn down into the into the peat yeah. and kill every seed every root yeah. every plant dead yeah. dead as a doornail and so that sets the whole thing down this back to zero so what comes in next well it depends on the season and what seeds are available and what seeds are nearby, seed sources are nearby and which way the wind blows and what the weather is and whether there's a drought or whether there's a wet spring or whether, the, it, it depends on all kinds of things. But a huge area has been barrens for forever. I mean, there's a really, there are really good historical accounts of those barrens looking exactly like they look now uh, when the very, very first Europeans arrived because they thought it was so weird that they had to write about it yeah. some, and so um, and so that's pretty clearly uh, an example of alternative I like to call them alternative persistent states because nothing is stable nothing is truly stable yeah. in nature nothing <laughs> so alternative persistent states and so you have the barrens and you have the northern hardwood forest and the barrens are being invaded. There's only one species that can really invade those barrens, and that's red maple. And it can do a really, really, really good job. It can destroy those barrens in within, you know, 25 years. So they're they're now burning like crazy up there to, to maintain the barrens from the red maple coming in. But the beech don't come in. You'll never see a beech tree in there. You'll never see a uh, a uh, nor, uh, yellow birch, you'll never see any of these species that are dominant right next door. It's, it's totally amazing. And so what causes or what drives the uh, positive feedback? There's a whole bunch of theories, or, and I think they're all right to a certain degree. But one of the most fascinating to me is that the plants that live in the barrens actually um, create an acidic environment because they're mostly ericaceous and coniferous and oak <laughs> so scrub oak in this case and so especially the ericaceous plants will acidify the soil just like sphagnum only not quite to that degree and they in acidifying the soil they cause the soil processes the clay forming processes and the clay movement processes in the soil to form a hard pan and then the hard pan um, is a root barrier and it's also uh, perch, creates a perched water table which drowns most tree seedlings or anybody else except these ericaceous plants are perfectly happy with their feet in the water for months at a time and so they make the environment living hell for anybody but themselves yeah. and they do it really well and they not only that but ericaceous plants this is fascinating to me grab the nutrients before anybody else can get it and especially in an acidic environment because they have specialized fungi in on their roots that are um, not just regular they're like you've heard of endomycorrhizae and ectomycorrhizae and 
Well, they're called ericoid mycorrhizae. They're different from all the other mycorrhizae. And they, um, they will grab amino acids, or they will grab big complex nitrogen-containing, um, nitrogen-based compounds from the soil and feed it directly to the plant. Most plants have to wait for bacteria yeah. to degrade the nitrogen-containing stuff into ammonium and nitrate. Those are the only things that most plants can take up. These guys can take up amino acids and use them through their aracoid mycorrhizae. So nobody else gets a hold of it, even before the bacteria are able to reduce it to ammonium and nitrate, the, the plants grab it. And so they keep, they keep uh, the nitrogen situation to their liking and to nobody else's liking. And on and on. There, there's, it's interesting, it's very cold up there because of um, various weather patterns. It's the coldest place in Pennsylvania in the summer. Is why people go to the Poconos in the summer, I guess, and uh, and you'll have frost in these open areas where trees can't grow or haven't been able to invade. You'll have frost every month of the year. There's frost in June, July, and August, and that kills off tree seedlings. And uh, there's a number of other things that could be involved in the positive feedback. Another one is how could I forget this one? These plants are. The, the northern hardwood forest has been called the asbestos forest because it, it doesn't burn. Almost all forests burn, and oak forests burn regularly or else they turn into maple forests. But northern hardwood forests just don't burn. They're fireproof. <laughs> They're not quite fireproof. In an extreme drought, you could probably set one on fire. But there's no oak litter in the uh, understory to carry a fire, a ground fire. They just don't like to burn. and. Uh, the barrens, on the other hand, the people up there call them, call the shrubs in aggregate kerosene bush because they're loaded with terpenes and yeah, all kinds sense. of good stuff that can't wait to be lit. <laughs> and, you know, and they're, furthermore, they've all got fire tolerance characteristics so that you can burn them off and Two weeks later, the shrubs are a foot tall again already, because they store all their nutrients in the soil. They also have, they also hang on to a whole lot of dead branches, which are great fuel. They do all kinds of things that appear to be pyrogenic. In other words, they haven't learned to light themselves yet, <laughs> ignite themselves yet, but they do all the other work yeah. of being pyrogenic. The whole community is selecting for itself. Yeah, it's not just in a way, it is. Well. It's incredible, and people, people have a problem with pyro the concept of pyrogenesis because how could one individual with a mutation that makes it a little more pyrogenic gain any benefit from it if it's surrounded by right. individuals that don't have that mutation? And a way, one way of of um, that actually working is that most of these things are clonal. And so yeah. an individual may be half an acre, and maybe that could <laughs> gain benefit by being more pyrogenic yeah. than its neighbor who didn't burn and who, which was subsequently shaded out by maple trees or whatever. So That's so interesting. That's such a limited idea sometimes of what constitutes an individual, yeah. I think, when uh, in this sort of older narrative about competition and so on, and now, what is an individual has become so blurred, both 
these enormous ancient clonal colonies, but right. also like all of the interior microbiome. Right. It gets very right. slippery. <laughs> this claim that how you know, an individual is selecting for itself. How can I be? How can I claim to be an individual when? Um, Three quarters of my cells are independent bacteria. Well, not independent, but bacteria yeah. that aren't even me. <laughs> it's just like it's complexity all the way down. And I think we just try to simplify with laws and narratives right. over and over right. again. And then you look deeper, and it's like, well, we need to push that one back one more level because it's actually a lot more complicated. Absolutely. So speaking of complicated and puzzles and uh, like. We, you know, we talked a little bit about Native American burning, and you mentioned uh, this contemporary example that I thought was pretty cool of harvesting the biomass off of a meadow and bringing it to your local mushroom production facility, which is this kind of cool symbiosis. Yeah. And I guess what I'm leading up to is, what other ways might you see restoration become part of our culture? in such a way that it's not just, you know, we get a little grant once in a while and we restore some very specialized area, but that it becomes integrated in the same way that maybe Native American burning might have led to serpentine barrens or, you know, in the mushroom example, you've got this cool little trade going on where, uh, you, you know, one site benefits and then we've got a lot of tasty mushrooms at the other end. So any other mechanisms, any other things you've run across lately that you think are promising in terms of very interested in the idea of not just the science of restoration, but building a culture around restoration or stewardship. Absolutely, and it's You're never going to work with. It. It's never going to work without that. It's never going to work on a big enough scale to mean anything without that. I totally agree with you. I just I see a cultural change, but then um, the people that are in my life are not a random sample, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I also see an incredible amount of ignorance about things ecological. Um, but, you know, there, there used to be one native plant nursery, I think, in all of Pennsylvania, and it was in, in Upper Marion in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Now there are, I don't know how many dozen, yeah. and New Jersey's the same way, and you're one of them, and, and all over the country I see this. When we were in San Diego over the winter, there's, there's a fair amount of, there's a pretty darn good amount of um, consciousness of native plants, getting rid of the non-natives, replacing them, rest, restoring areas. We went to city parks in in uh, San Diego, which, by the way, awesome city parks, huge. All the canyons basically are parkland, which yeah, is wonderful. Nice. And and uh, seeing big restoration projects with you know the tubes around trees and little little trees that the people are trying to grow and all that kind of stuff, and removing. Um, like eucalyptus and all the invasives, and it's just it's just becoming more and more of a thing. I think we could take some uh, lessons probably from Australians and um, New Zealanders because those are island. Australia's a pretty big island, but those are those are island uh, floras and faunas that have been disproportionately hammered by uh, globalization, and people are much more aware, I think. People in, in uh, Australia know about the rabbit situation and what a catastrophe that was and the cane toad situation and what a catastrophe that is. And the people in New Zealand know that their iconic um, critters are being, are, have been wiped out over most of the entire country by rats 
and by mongoose or whatever they have down there. And uh, if, you know, I, I'd hate to... I just I don't even want to speculate because it's too depressing. But how, what will it take for for your average Joe on the street to know to know about invasive species and how destructive they are, and to care about our patrimony, which is and matrimony, <laughs> which is uh, which is our native you know, flora and fauna, and we need to do something because it's being degraded generation by generation and our shifting baseline most people aren't even aware of it you know a lot of people look at a forest with nothing but stiltgrass in it and think oh what a pretty park <laughs> and stiltgrass didn't exist when I was a child at least not in the wild people are you know it's 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 a tough situation but all I can do is be as involved as possible and all you can do is be as involved as possible and that's what you're doing to spreading the word and getting getting people more aware and hoping that it spreads and reaches a tipping point somehow at some point. I mean, people in, in our borough here, the, the uh, EAC has been pretty active in trying to, trying to educate people on or to make available information on uh, native plants and their values for wildlife and their values for ecological uh, um, integrity and we have a plant sale now every year where we practically give them away like three dollars a plant and sell hundreds and hundreds of plants just so people will, you know improve the the resource for butterflies and birds and everybody else who lives who we share our little pieces of property with and uh, I think it's working but you know is it too little too late I don't know I don't want to think about that I'm just yeah trying to do my best. One of the things I really like about restoration practice is this sort of puzzle that you're presenting and all the complexity and also the trial, trial and error and the art yeah. of making all these mistakes and figuring out these yeah. techniques. And so I really appreciate all the techniques that you turned me on to and the way that you're putting together history, geology, and banking. So I want to thank you for spending this time talking and doing this interview, and thank you for the work that you've done. It's My pleasure. Always great to talk with you. Okay. Thanks so much, Roger.